Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 299, special Purim edition. I was quite surprised this past week by the fact that uh, though we get an abundance of questions every week, but more than ever about Purim itself. So, of course, apropos, most fitting is to address these questions, very different colors and shapes across the spectrum, being that this is the week of Purim, the celebration of Purim going back thousands of years, applying it to our lives through the lens of Teda and and that will be the focus. This program is in honor of the engagement of Chani Jacobson and Gavriel Dayan, dedicated by the Jacobson family. And on another note, also in loving memory of Yeshaya Gansberg, 7th yard site on the 7th of other Tovshin Ayin Gimel, 5773, and the 6th yard site of Rashi Minkowitz on the 10th of other 5774, Tovshin Ayin Dalet. So Purim. There are so many different themes that Chassidus explains on Purim, and we've discussed them in previous years. I'm not going to repeat because you can always refer to the archives and I will announce that right now at chassidahsupply.com specially designated website to all types of resources applying chassidahs to our personal, emotional, psychological, spiritual lives. And there in in episodes 58, 108, 154, 203, 253, literally every year, Six years that six some years that we've been doing this program, we discuss different angles of Purim. Here, as I said, there are many unique questions, but I will begin just one short overview in general. As I said, Hasidic's themes are many on Purim, and overall, of course, it's the story of transformation from the darkest to the brightest. That's why it's called In the Megillah, we read the month that everything was transformed. From an utter genocide, total genocide of men, women, and children. Of the entire Jewish people, it turned into be the greatest celebration of their salvation. Nepach, transformation. That obviously the way we celebrate Purim, therefore, is also through transformation. We don't just do things on a regular routine basis. The mitzvah is simcha adelayada, a simcha that is unbound, unfettered, without any limits. We'll be speaking more about that, but that is its idea, because joy that comes from transformation is a completely different category. So Simcha has that powerful theme that is associated with Purim. Unity. Unity. Even Haman, the archenemy of the Jewish people, the Hitler of the times, Yemach Shemay. And we actually erase his name, the name of Amalek, as we stamp every time we hear his name read in the Megillah, he wanted to destroy everyone. And like he said, in his words to Ahasuerus, to incite, his inciting words, he said, Yeshna am echad. In your empire, 127 nations, there's one nation. That spread out everywhere among your peoples, among your countries. 
And their religion, their faith is different than everyone's. Their belief system. So in one way, he was inciting by saying that they are completely different. But he also said, Amechot, one nation. And they're unique. In a sense, he described, as so often our enemies did, our own strength. So how do we celebrate? By exactly being an Amechot, by being a nation. That's not a Fuzer and separate, but one, united by our beliefs, united by our traditions, united by our love for each other. And hence the mitzvahs, as the Ramah writes in Mechir Yayin and other commentaries write, the mitzvahs of Mishloyach Monas Yishlareyehu, sending gifts to one another, monetary matonis lavyenim, gifts to um, the poor, celebrating together in a suda, which is always a form of unity. A unity, because unity is the greatest antidote and the greatest solution to all types of evils that try to attack us. Unity. Whenever there's disunity, God forbid, sinas chinam, baseless hatred, destruction of the temple. So the point is, unity is a force of connection. And that's why Mordechai Esther said to go yakuluk, to gather together in a kehila, all the Jews, the children, all the Jews to pray together. The power of unity, of a kehila. Which is what we do on Purim as well. These are just some of the themes. There are other themes, including the theme of Geirl, the Apur, Hua Geirl, the name of the holiday itself, reflects also, as I said before, something beyond the rational, the supra-rational. That's what a Geirl is. When you throw lots, Haman throw lots, threw lots, and Yom Kippur we throw lots. Lots is something that's not rationally calculated. You're depending on something beyond the rational. Purim again, Adela Yoda, beyond Yoda, beyond consciousness, beyond the rational, beyond intelligent calculation. And the lessons that we learn from this are many. Transformation, unity, and superconsciousness. So what does that mean, transformation? Transformation is no matter what situation you're in, Purim teaches us that in a moment's notice, in a moment, it could all turn around because there's a higher hand at work. Unity, a force both in our own internal lives, in our families and communities and nations to fight everything that divides us and to discover the deeper underlying unity that connects us is the strongest thing you can do to fight any type of disease, illness, both physically as well as spiritually and above all spiritually. And finally, that superconscious connection, that life is far more than just calculated methodologies and structured thinking. You need that as well, but it's driven by a foundation that's superconscious, that's a gradle, lo yoda, that's beyond our consciousness. And when we're connected on that level, in a unified level, we can transform any form of darkness. These are just a brief summary of the central themes of Purim. With that, let us go into the questions and there are many. I hope I can cover them all. If not, we'll either leave them for a later week or we may have to leave them for the next year. Purim after Mashiach's coming. And then you may not need this program in the first place. Uh, or maybe we'll first need it to teach Chassidus. Chassidus will be learned then all over the world. So we'll need many such programs and many such classes and um, interactions. So we'll start with being in the order that before Purim, which will be on Tuesday, comes uh, Tainus Esther, the fast of Esther, which we commemorate the fast three days that Esther designated, she fasted, 
The people fasted then in the time of their challenges. Fasting, of course, is a way of abolishing and uh, eliminating all forms of decrees. So the question is asked, if the original fast of Esther was due to the dangerous threat to the Persian Jews of that time, and actually it was not just to the Persian Jews, it was to all the Jews, why do we still fast on that day when we currently do not face a similar threat? Okay. This question, of course, can be asked about every situation. Passover, Pesach is coming, and we recreate the ten plagues, and we remember uh, different things that happened back then, including a fast as well on Erev Pesach, the fast of the firstborn, which today, for many, we do is by making a seum, concluding a tractate in the Talmud, so that mitigates the need for a fast. But however, why are we remembering things of the things that happened back then? So the first simple reason is this, that we commemorate those events, we don't forget them. But above all, as the Arizal, explaining actually a verse in the Megillah, of Purim, Megillah's Esther, Hayomim Ha'elin Niskarim Venasim. These days, Niskarim, we remember Venasim. What's the Venasim? We remember them. Venasim means we recreate them. Because in Judaism, we're taught time is like a spiral. And every point of the year that comes back to that day in the calendar, recreates that same energy that happened back then. That's why we say, for example, about Passover, Pesach, we say that in every generation, in every day, we have to imagine ourselves, a person is responsible to see himself as if he was leaving Egypt today. And the same thing with Purim, and the same thing with all the holidays. So whatever happened then, spiritually, we recreate. Even if there is an actual, even, even if there isn't an actual decree. Secondly, there's always certain forms of decrees. They may not be quite as it was then, but we all have constrictions and we all have different challenges in our time. So when we fast now, we're not just remembering what happened, we are recreating it now and applying it to a given situation. So imagine on Tainus Esther, something that may be blocking you from achieving total joy and total redemption. And that is what we do when we fast. So Nasim, we're also recreating that same experience. And this, as I said, is across the board with all holidays. We're not just remembering, we're recreating. And whatever happened then is also happening now. In those days and today. And that's the beauty, especially Chassidus teaches us, how all these events are spiritual events, and they replay themselves. The Baal Shem Tov has a beautiful Torah on the Megillah, on the Gemara and Megillah that says, If a person decides to read the Megillah backwards, say you want to read from last chapter backwards, it's not considered fulfilling the mitzvah of reading the Megillah. Of course, it seems like a scenario, who would want to read the Megillah backwards? Says the Baal Shem Tov, Hakeira Megillah means you read it as if it's something that happened in the past. Backwards meaning, it happened back then, it's not today. It's not the real Purim. And the Rebbe explains in some sikhs and talks that he delivers that both interpretations, actually it's a deeper interpretation because when you read it as if it happened in the past, so what happened earliest when we look back? The last chapter. And then you work your way back to the beginning of the story. But if, you read, but, if you start, but if you experience it like it's happening now, then you read it from the front to the back, from the beginning of the Megillah to the end. So both interpretations, the Baal Shem Tov's interpretation illuminates the dimension, what means reading backwards, not just reading technically backwards, but reading as if it's a backward story, meaning it's something back then, 
and then we work our way back. Instead of something going forward, where we read every year as a fresh story. So even though we know the narrative, and we know the plot, and we know the ending, but we're reliving it in our personal lives, as we shall be discussing some of those messages, and we mentioned before as well. Okay, the next big question, and no particular order, is why is there ever a mitzvah to get drunk? Of course, referring to the story of Purim, so I mentioned Chayiv Inish Lipsumi. A person is responsible, Chayiv, is obligated to get drunk. Lipsumi means to get intoxicated to the point that he cannot recognize the difference. Adalayada, till he cannot recognize the difference, the distinction between Baruch Mordechai and Arur Haman. That Mordechai is blessed and Haman is cursed. So, besides the, the, the actual question of intoxication, it seems weird. They shouldn't recognize such the difference between dark and light, between good and evil, between um, a, 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 you know, a genocidal murderer and a tzaddik. So, of course, Chassidus comes and illuminates what that means deeper. So, but let's begin first with the drinking issue. So, why is there ever a mitzvah to get drunk? It seems like a very wild thing to do. Why is it a mitzvah? Also, where's the mokka for that mitzvah? Meaning, where did the Gemara get it from? Was it created by the Amarayan? And if yes, why did they come up with it? Also, why aren't there five mitzvahs of Purim if one is obligated to drink? Well, that answers the other questions. So it's derived from different verses. And basically, as I said before, Purim being an unbridled and unlimited form of joy. And the Chacham Chazal derived from that, that it comes, that comes down to coming to a point of reaching that type of level where you're completely beyond your conscious state. Now, of course, that sounds very dangerous, as a matter of fact, especially in our day and age where we see people addicted to alcohol and to other substances to the point of oblivion, that the point of completely losing themselves to the point of danger to themselves and to others. So the first thing we have to establish when we're talking about Purim, and I discussed this in previous years, I'll give you some references in a moment, that we're talking about a simcha of Gdusha, meaning people who are holy people, who are people who are completely in control of themselves, and not getting drunk and becoming wild and crazy. God forbid. It's not simcha shalhedel, it's just a, just a uh, frivolous form of joy, like some people just get drunk and they lose it. We're talking about people who, when they drink, you know what happens? The deepest dimensions of their superconsciousness is revealed. And they begin to teach and reveal ideas that they would never have revealed in a regular scenario. So Purim is not about getting drunk. Purim is about loyoda, to get beyond, not beneath knowledge, but beyond awareness, that you can actually access the deeper parts of your superconscious soul and reveal them on this day of Purim. So in that sense, in that sense, we have to appreciate the context. Someone that cannot say l'chaim in that way shouldn't be saying l'chaim. Someone saying just to get drunk, chaz v'shalom, God forbid. And that not distinction between Haman and Mordechai is not because you're suddenly so um, out of it that you can't see between right and wrong. A person who can't see between right and wrong shouldn't be drinking. It means you see a place where God, as Chassidus explains, the essence of the divine is beyond the distinction of night and day, between good and evil. Not because evil is acceptable, but because there's a stage in the divine that is beyond structure, beyond the structure of right and wrong. God is essentially good, but that essential good, as Chassidus explains, is not defined by structure. Then God created a structure, the right and wrong, Haman and Mordechai. So Purim is reaching a deeper place, not a lower place, 
where a person doesn't have a distinction, no boundaries and no borders. Because Purim touches the essence of what the soul is all about. That's why it's one day. We'll later talk about Purim and Yom Kippur and its comparisons. But it all is about oneness, Yechida. Teaching the oneness of the essence of the soul. And that Yechida sees everything in the light of the divine. Even Haman is not because evil is accepted, because it sees that the whole purpose of it is transforming it. That the whole purpose of the negative is to reveal the goodness within it, as what hap- as is what happened on Purim. That's what Purim accesses. So without Purim, we have days, every day has a structure, things that you're supposed to do, things you're not supposed to do. Purim also has what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do. But Purim reaches a dimension not just of structured Judaism, not just of the divine as it defines itself and translates itself into the structures of existence, but takes us to a place beyond existence, which is beyond. Now, if you cannot drink in that fashion, then you shouldn't be drinking. That's called chayv inish lipsuma. A person is getting drunk, getting drunk. But I wouldn't use the word drunk or intoxicated. They're reaching a place that's beyond. In Tavshim Emdal is a fascinating talk that the Rebbe delivered, which of course touches upon this. And that was the famous story that was one Purim Rabbi, a great sage, got intoxicated on Purim. And what did he do? He went to Shachta. Literally means he slaughtered. He killed Rabzeda. That's how you learned the Gemara. That he slaughtered him. Shachtel Rabzeda. Shechted him. And then when he saw what he did, he created a miracle and brought him back to life. The next year, he wanted to do it again. He said to Rabzeda, let's party again. Rabzeda said, what do you think? Not every day miracles happen. And he refused. So the Gemara, of course, from beginning to end, doesn't make sense. It, as a matter of fact, it only accentuates and amplifies this question. What kind of drinking is that? What kind of behavior is that? Look what it brought, even Rabbah, let alone people of a lower demeanor, lower status. And the most powerful sikha that ever brings many different commentaries, everyone, this one explains it metaphorically, but the Gemara does say, and says next year, Rab did not want to party again, did not want to celebrate Purim again. So how could the Gemara, and afterwards the Chayv still remains, we still have that responsibility. After what we saw, that's capable of a person to do that. And the Rebbe explains, interestingly, many of these explanations sometimes are hinted to in the end of the Maimer, of a Purim Maimer, in Tov Shen Ches, in 1948, in a footnote, the Rebbe briefly states the whole answer that he gave in 1984, that many years later. It says, the Diyuk is V'shochte L'Rabzeir, V'shochte. Shechita, it doesn't say he killed him, he murdered him, God forbid. Shechita, ein V'shochet Elo Amashach. Shochat, the halacha says, what is really shechita? It's not the severing, it's a moshach, it's the drawing. It's the uncovering. So mshicha means to elevate. It's an elevation. Rabba, as his name indicates, means greatness. Rabba means rav, a lot, abundant. Zera, rab zera, in Aramaic, is, is, zera is, um, means small. Rabba was a man of great spiritual intelligence and spiritual experience. What he did was on Purim, he took wine, and he revealed the secrets of Torah which are compared to Yayin. So he reached a place of this abundant spirituality, and he revealed it to Rab Zayda, who did not have the containers for it. So it caused Nefesh. It caused that his spirit should separate from his body from the great ecstasy of being overwhelmed by these secrets. So yes, it was, a, it was caused him to 
separate body and soul, but not through a murder or through a knife because he lost his son. It was because the revelation of great energy that was too much for the containers of Rabzeda. When Rabbi saw what he did, he had to regain, reconnect, and reintegrate him. And he did that. The next year, Rabzeda, he wanted to teach him again deep secrets of Torah. Rabzeda said, not every day happens a miracle. Not every day can we contain it. Can you, can you re, can reintegrate after it was not contained? So you see from this that Chai Vinshlip Summa is a very, super, very, super, very lofty level, not something that everybody can access. So we say Chai Vinshlip Summa, there are conditions what that means. Someone's not capable of being in that level, they shouldn't be drinking. Definitely not in that capacity. So that's the Nakuda here. The, as far as the actual sources, I have to look up more. If anybody has actual source where the Chazal learned it from, if I recall correctly, there is some type of source. I have to look it up again. But I think that suffices. The, part, the, chapter, the episodes where I discussed in general drinking and how to reconcile it with the Teda, where the Teda allows it, obviously a drinking of Gdusha in a holy way, is, is episodes 134 and 135, 247 and 280. Next question. How could Mordechai put all the Jews in danger by not bowing to Haman? So we know the famous story in the Megillah that when Haman, everybody was appointed to be second in command or a, a, a great minister in the Hashverish's palace, it was the command was everyone had to bow to him, to defer to him. He would not bow, he would not prostrate himself. And that instigated, that incited Haman and was one of the things that, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, that finally caused them to be so angry and to decree against the Jewish people. So here's the question. Are there rabbinical opinions that say Mordechai did the wrong thing by refusing to bow to Haman? And by refusing to bow, he put the lives of all Jews in Persia in danger. The Jews were saved on Purim by a miracle from God. But we are taught, ain't same chanalanes. Do not rely on a miracle. And especially in regard to Purim. Rabzeir refused an invitation to Rav's Purim party, as I just mentioned. After Rav got very drunk, Rav got very drunk and killed him, and then miraculously revived him the year before. We shouldn't say killed, as I said, he elevated him. And in his refusal, he said, I'm not coming because miracles don't happen every year. Was it fair of Mordechai to rely on a miracle to save the Jews? That's the, the gist of the, that's the question. So the obvious answer to it, bowing to uh, Haman wasn't just bowing to a person. First of all, he was wearing some form of idol. Secondly, he saw himself as an idol. So this is Avedazar. Avedazar, it goes in the category of Yareg Valyavar. Die before you uh, transgress. But still, the question remains, as we shall discuss soon, because when it comes to the Nedib Yehuda, the famous Nedib Yehuda writes, the, the, the Yehuda writes on the famous question, how Esther was allowed to be with Achashverosh, so there's the passive element, was adultery. She was married, according to one opinion, to uh, Mordechai. So there's one answer is because she was passive. She wasn't aggressively. She was only the recipient of someone violating her. And he answers that when it comes to a pikuach nefesh for an entire nation, not one person, then she was moisha nefesh herself for that to save the Jewish people. So you could argue the same thing with Mordechai. Why was he not Moshe Nefesh for the Jewish people when he sees that he's going to be inciting Haman? 
So the question you can uh, still remains. So let me read a second question and then I'll respond to it all. If Esther was given a pass and not punished for her sin of having relations with Achishverosh, a Gentile, because she did so in order to save all the Jews from harm, and not because she really wanted to do it, that's basically the explanation of the Nadi Yehuda. Um, and uh, see episode 203, where I discuss this more at length, then why didn't Mordechai bow to Haman? Surely he could have, he would have been given, also been given a pass because it would, have been done, it would have been done to prevent harm to the Jews, and not because he really wanted to. So first of all, let's make this clear. The fact that he would not have bowed, that if he would have, not, if he would have bowed to Haman, that would have, uh, eliminated, it, it would have uh, prevented the decree is not necessarily the case. We don't know that. Esther going to Achashverosh was very clearly she was his bride, she was his queen. But here, Haman had many other reasons. That's number one. Number two, to actively and aggressively go to bow, not passively, is an act that, no matter what, is not necessarily acceptable. The fact that Esther did it, as I said, that was a vadai, at least one that was very likable, very plausible, that she will be successful as she was, and with Mordechai not. But finally, the most important thing. The whole point of the Megillah is faith in God. By Esther, it was not Avedah Zorah we're talking about, even though it's also one of the three great crimes, adultery. However, Avedah Zorah is the whole Yisod of the Megillah. That's why the Jews are called Yehudim. Yehudim, Mordechai Yehudi. As the Gemara says, because from the word Hedorah, they acknowledge God's presence and they denied all forms of idolatry, as the Talmud says. For Mordechai Yehudi to compromise the very essence of what a Jew is would undermine the whole story, which of course teaches us a lesson that as much as anti-Semites hate Jews, never bow to them, never compromise, especially on the belief itself to turn Haman even for a moment to think that he is a god or some deity undermines the whole connection. And it's the faith in God that actually abolished the decree. And being a proud Jew and standing upright, even though for the moment, yes, may have contributed to the danger, but at the end of the day, is what that itself was the thing that brought them salvation. The connection to the divine that Mordechai would not compromise for one moment. So it's not always our calculations that, make a, that really work here. With Esther... There was no compromise of faith. There was a compromise of her own future. That's why she says, I am lost forever, perhaps, due to my actions. And as the commentaries explain, it's because she was violating things of Yarek Vayaver, or different sins as uh, different commentaries explain. And here, Mordechai's bowing was not for his own benefit. He would have bowed what? For the Jewish people? He wasn't bowing for his benefit. There Esther was doing that in order to abolish the decree. So that would be the most basic answer for this, uh, to these questions. Okay. Next question. Are there allusions in Medrash that Esther was married to Mordechai? Absolutely, not just in Medrash, in Gemara Megillah 13a, Yud Gimel Aleph, the Gemara Megillah Megillah. And uh, it says it clearly, there's two opinions, that she was a niece, Another opinion is that she was her, she was the wife of Mordechai, which of course made her mesidus nefesh even greater, because once she violated herself with Achashverosh, she can never go back to her beloved husband Achashverosh to Mordechai. 
but she did it all for the Mesiris Nefesh, for the Jewish people. Again, in episode 203, I explained more at length that whole ability that she was allowed to marry Achishvedish. No need to go over that. Next question. But the, since we're on Mordechai and Esther, let's talk about Mordechai and Esther. The names of Mordechai and Esther. Is there a connection between Mordechai and Esther and the Babylonian gods, Marduk and Ishtar? So in uh, Babylonian mythology, there's Marduk and Ishtar, which sounds very much like Mordechai and Esther. The names sound very similar. So this has been discussed. Different, uh, there are different essays and articles. And they say there is a similarity. However with a key distinction. One is not allowed to use a name of Avedizara. It's an Isr. You're not allowed to use the name of Avedizara. That's why there's a whole question about the name of Tammuz, the month of Tammuz, because it's the name of a certain deity. So that's why there has to be changed. So even there was a relationship to, Mar- to Marduk and, Ash- and uh, Ishtar, there had to be changed the names, and that's why Mordechai and Esther. If you look in the Gemara, Esther, actually her name was Hadassah. Mordechai, some say, was Psachia. The different opinions of what his name was. Both of them are Persian names. Esther is from the name Hastir, Astir, but has a certain Persian touch to it. And Mordechai is a Persian name. So the question is, why don't we use their original names? Precisely because of that, the Gemara says, that the, the, the axe, the wood of the tree is used to cut down a tree. That's the handle of the axe is used to cut down the tree that is made from, from the wood. Why? Because that's called transformation, as I mentioned before. So Mordechai and Esther, they entered into the Persian world, and they maintained their spiritual integrity. The name is changed, Mordechai and Esther, it's not Marduk and Ishtar. However, it has a similarity because it draws out and extracts and redeems the sparks that are so darkly embedded in those deities which was all about what happened here. Mordechai was a Mishnah Melech. Mordechai was in Shar HaMelech. He was one of the close ministers to Achashverosh. Esther, of course, married Achashverosh, was the queen. They went into the abyss, into the darkness of this Golas, and they redeemed it and turned it into Nepach, a day transformed into the holy and powerful day of Purim, of the Adela Yada, a joy of La Yehud, so it has a similarity, but it's also the transformation aspect to it. Talking about names, let's go to the next question. Why is God's name not mentioned in Megillah Esther? Famous question. If it was God's miracle that saved the Jews from the decree of Haman and Achashverosh, why isn't God's name mentioned anywhere in Megillah Esther? So let's go straight to the Chassidus on this, this being a program of Chassidus applied. So this is brought to the Alta Rebbe explains it, and it's elaborated upon in many different Maimodim. The Rebbe, of course, talks about it as well. Because there are three types of relationships and interactions between God and the universe. One is we call Teva, nature. God created the world with certain designated laws that govern the celestial bodies, the seasons, all the systems, the biological and chemical and physical and physics and so on, are all controlled by the laws of nature. Called Teva. Ha-Teva. Ha-Teva. The Gematria Lekim. The way the divine manifests in nature. And God does not disrupt nature, as mentioned before. It does not create miracles for no reason. Especially after the Mabel. 
which suspended some of the natural uh, flows of seasons and the celestial bodies, God made a promise, Lo He will never again create pause in the cycle, natural cycle of things. That's why we say, that a shidduch is as difficult for God as the parting of the sea. Why is it difficult? God can do anything He wants. Because once He created existence, God bound Himself to these laws, His very laws that He Himself put into place and does not suspend them. Even when they're suspended, let's say, the parting of the sea, you don't see God suddenly says, you know what, I created the sea, I created land, now let's just, just walk through. Brings a wind, and the wind blows the water to stand up like a wall. So it's, even though it's a miracle, but it's a miracle still within the, within the confines, to some extent of nature. The second type of relationship is the other extreme, a miracle, like the miracle I just mentioned. It suspends the laws of nature. Even there, it's not complete suspension, but it's a suspension that's obvious to everyone. And then there's a third level of a relationship. It's called Nisim Meluboshim Beteva. A mess, it's a miracle, but it looks like a natural event. The story of Purim is exactly that. The story of Purim took, spanned close to nine years. Hashverosh becomes king, throws a party, summons Vashti, all like seemingly random events. Rashti refuses to come. He gets angry, has her killed, starts searching for another queen. It happens to be Esther. Mordechai happens to overhear the conspiracy of Bixam Besheresh, conspiring against the king. He reports it, and they're killed, and the king is saved. Time passes. The king has, happens to have insomnia one night. They happened to bring the stories to read to him, which story opened up, the story of how Mordechai saved his life, so the king then remembers and wants to reward Mordechai. And who does he point to reward him? Haman. All these seemingly, like if you look at the disjointed, fragmented events. And then of course it all comes together. Once he rewards Mordechai, Haman gets even angrier, plots to kill. Then Esther intervenes. And that Esther, in the right place, in the right time, finally convinces the king to reverse the decree, and this holiday of Purim emerges. Nine years, if you lived during that period, you wouldn't know. You'd see seemingly random events, but now you're looking back in retrospect. Or with a bird's eye view, you connect the dots. That's a Nes Malubish Bateva. How is it different nature itself? Nature itself, you may not find that pattern. Nature is, there's a governing force, there's a, the divine hand, manifesting the laws of nature. But here in nature itself, there's a choreography taking place that's leading to a great salvation, a great redemption called Purim. And that's also in our own personal lives. So it's God's, na- God's hand is there, but it's concealed. Therefore, God's name is concealed in the Megillah. You have a Rosh Tevis in a few places where you can find the acronym. But in a revealed way, no, because it's not like Pesach, Passover, when revealed miracles were obvious. It's not just nature itself. It's God's hand, but God's invisible hand. You look closely, you'll see it. So the name is in there, but it's not revealed in an open, direct way. The lesson to that in our lives is very straightforward. We all have Purims going on all the time. We don't see it, because you're living through it, you see the moment. Sometimes you look back, you say, wow, one second, how did that all come together? So we have to always remember to look for the patterns, to look for the bird's eye view, the bigger picture, the vision. And there's a divine, secret divine, the concealed divine name, the concealed name of God, concealed in the choreography of your life. Next question. 
What did the Jews do wrong by attending Achashver's banquet? So we write, read in the beginning of the Megillah, you read, of course, the big banquet, all the details. And the Jews participated. So the Gemara says, They enjoyed it. The actual going to the banquet, there were different opinions in the commentaries, whether it was appropriate or not appropriate, whether it was kosher or not kosher, whether it was nefesh because the king would not have accepted them not coming. There are different opinions. But Nen, the Rebbe has in several sikhs, he talks about in the 60s, Tov Shechavov, I believe, Chav Zayin, the Rebbe speaks about Nen, that you enjoyed it. Even if you had to go for whatever reason, the Nen. Enjoying means you're indulging in it. What it means in simple terms is, the Jewish people, you were chosen to be, you were chosen to be a house sacred nation. A nation of priests, a kingship, a uh, priest of, of priests, and a sacred nation. To teach the world what it means to be sacred. To teach the world what it means to live up to a higher calling. And you're going and stooping and enjoying the exact opposite. Yes, he's the king. And even after the Megillah, it says, Akat Avdad was still. The servants of Achshir were in Golos, but you don't have to enjoy it. You don't have to sing and dance. And even though that can be a subtle thing, you can say it's not like an overt. It's not, it, but it's your state of mind. It means that you are recognizing that the world controls you, and you're enjoying it, and you have become now a part of it. You're serving that which should be serving the divine, and that is a grave compromise. That is one of the ways it's explained. There are others talk about. The, the, the different uh, vessels that were used from the Beis Amidah, so it was a disgrace, it was a dishonoring and a chil Hashem. There are different reasons given, but one I just wanted to share was that one, because it's very relevant to our time. We're blessed, thank God, with prosperity, with comforts. Yes, we all have our challenges, but this is easy times relative to what our parents and grandparents had. And everyone should be blessed with wealth, with abundance, materially. But what do you enjoy most should be godliness should be the divine, should be the neshama, should be your family, higher values. So yes, be there, but your head has to always be a little higher. Famous story with the Rebbe Rashab, one of the chassidim became a wealthy man because in those good old days of the shtetl, shoes would get spoiled in the muddy streets before there was pavement. So he built a business called a galoshes business. Galoshes, galoshen in Yiddish. And galoshes saved many a shoe. The Rebbe Rashab saw him years later and met him. He was a great student at the time when he was in yeshiva. He looked, gave one look at him and saw where his head was. So he said, with a smile, he said, I've seen feet in galoshes, but I never saw a head in galoshes. A cup in galoshes. The lay level level, it says. Be, be invested, but not with the complete enthusiasm. Save some of your most precious passion for loftier things. So we have to have our feet planted on the ground, but our head has to be in heaven. Pleasure should be reserved for that. That's one of the lessons of what, the, what went, went wrong when the Jews felt, ah, we're here, we're going to party, why not? He's giving us a party. We're living in comfortable times today. Let's party. Party, but with a certain measure, certain discipline, certain um, seasoning, recognizing where your real energy and real thank gratitude and, and thank, thanks should go. Next question.
Why are women obligated to hear the Megillah if it is a mitzvah esher shazman gromo? So we know in the mitzvahs, given there are mitzvahs that are tmidis, meaning permanent, not time-bound mitzvahs, like loving God, fear of God, awe of God, avis Yisrael. Mitzvah shazman gromo that are time-bound because women have the responsibility of children and building families and so on. So the Torah in its compassion said, Things that are time-bound, since you may be busy with something else, you're not responsible for. Things that are not time-bound, you can always do it when you have the free time. Purim, of course, is time-bound. It's a particular day. So this is a question, of course, in, in Gemara and Halacha, and the answer is a very simple answer. The same thing with Pesach. Because the women, too, were saved. So it would be not appropriate for them not to acknowledge so we talk about mitzvah shazman gram like putting on tefillin. It's not commemorating a particular thing that saved the, the, the women or the Jewish people. It's part of what happened after mitzvah is one of the mitzvahs. And the same thing with other mitzvahs. But when it comes to something that the women pers- were saved, they were in the miracle because anoshim, noshim v'taf, Haram wanted to destroy them all, that's why they also participated in it. The Rebbe goes even further, and we'll talk about that in a moment, that Megillah Esther is actually called in the name of Esther, even though everything Mordechai said, Esther did. She followed his instructions, but she put herself on the line. And women, whenever it came to crisis, whether it's the exodus from Egypt or the miracle of Hanukkah and the miracle of Purim, they play a prominent role. Not only they're also in the miracle, they actually led the way. They guided, they were the leaders. So let me go to that next question. Why is Esther credited with saving the Jews by marrying Achashverosh? Why, why is Esther credited with saving the Jews by marrying Achashverosh and getting him to annul Haman's genocide decree when we see from her actions that she did everything possible to avoid marrying the king? She went into hiding and had to be taken to the beauty contest by force. She refused to put on makeup and perfume in order to purposely lose the contest, etc. So as I mentioned before, and I'll elaborate more, she didn't, who would want to imagine you're, a, a, you're married to Mordechai, according to one opinion. You're living a beautiful life, spiritual life, a Jewish life. Why would you want to marry a king called Achashverosh? Especially someone who's not interested in the wealth and the power and, the, and so on. So of course she did everything possible. Until she was told by Mordechai that we don't know what Hashem's plans are. So she, in, in the Mesidus Nefesh, against her will did something which is rare and unprecedented to the point of compromising herself, as I discussed earlier, to save the Jewish people. So both her now wanting to go and then going was both Mr. Snefesh, each in his time. The fact that she had to drag her feet, precisely because that's the type of person she was. Like we say about Moshe Rabbeinu, he didn't want to be the leader, but that's what God wanted. He wanted a person who didn't want the job. His Mr. Snefesh was both ways, when he didn't want it, and then when he did it, because that's what was necessary. So to ask a question why she gets credit because she didn't, you wanted her to go enthusiastically? You wanted to jump into it, to jump into the frying pan, to the fire, into such an Nisoyen, which is an Nisoyen, because once she was there, it was not so simple. That's why even Mordechai had to tell her that maybe this is the reason you came here because to save the people, and that won't be you, it will be someone else. Not that she got cold feet, but it was not easy because she was in a situation now of danger as well as great power. 
Because of this Mesiris Nefesh, the Megillah is calling her name. Of course, the halachic reason is because she came to the Chazal, Chachamim of the generation, asked Chasfuni Ladeiris, may this document, the Megillah Sester, be written for become a posterity, one of the Chavdalad, one of the 24 holy books, which it became. So she was Mesa Nefesh for it. But the deeper reason is also the story itself and the narrative itself, which carries tremendous lessons for all of us, especially women of our generation. The spiritual leaders, as the Rebbe emphasizes, in the merit of the righteous women of our generation, they, the Jews left Egypt, and in this generation the same, the merit of the Jewish women, we will leave this Golas into the Gula Amitiz Vashlema. So there's a Messias Nefesh necessary, not always quite on this scale, but a Messias Nefesh to keep the eyes on the ball, keep focused. And when something is not appropriate, to stay away from it every way possible. When you have to do something, do what's necessary. Obviously, with the right discretion, with the right halachic perspective, chassidish perspective. So make sure you're doing what's right and not what you think may be right. Okay. Next question. By the Tov Shin and Zion in the Megillah, when you look in the actual Megillah scroll, You'll see in the Megillah there are three letters purposely written small. The Toph, the Shin, and the Zion. And you'll see that in the three names of Haman, the small Toph in Pashan Dosa, a small Shin in Parmashta, and a small Zion in Vayazosa, three of the ten children of Haman. Is that a hint to the year of Toph Shin Zion? Which is Toph Shin Zion in Hebrew would be five... 704, Tov, Shin, Zion, these three letters, when 10 Nazis were hung after the Nuremberg trials, hung like the 10 sons of Haman. So this has been pointed out by some, that that happened in the, in the beginning of Tov, Shin, Zion, October 1946, which was already the new year, Tov, Shin, Zion. Hinting that especially we know that Julius Streicher, one of the Nazi Machshamon leaders, when that he was hung, witnesses said that he said, put him fest, 1946. No one even understands what he meant. So there's the stories go around about this. Is it a hint to that? Is the Megillah saying that the Nazis are descendants of Homa? If so, how are they any descendants of Homa if his daughter jumped off a roof and all his sons were hung? So we don't know if the Nazis are descendants of Homa, but they definitely continued the spirit of Amalek, of Homa, and trying to kill all the Jewish people. So I don't know if it's a technical question. Is there a hint to the Tavshin Zion? There may be. I've never heard it in a source like the Rebbe that I could just say I have an authoritative source. It's an interesting observation, and that's all I would say in that matter. Now, as far as writing these three letters, why could you write the three letters this way? So it's unclear what the source is for writing these letters in small. Although this has been done in Megillus that go back many generations, and especially in Chabad, we know the Megillah of the Rebbe Marash, that he himself wrote, that we see it that way written. The earliest dated source, which relates this custom, can be found in Hagos Maimonis. This is a commentary, a gloss on Rambam, in Hilchus Megillah, chapter 2, in Os Ayin, in the letter, in the 70th the comment. He brings this idea, who brings in the name of the Maram of Rottenberg to write a small Shin Tov Zion. That's what I was able to trace but I don't believe we have an earlier source reason for this. If anybody has something to comment on this, please share. Next question. Since we're talking about verses, there's a, there's a question. Why, 
Why are some of the verses read aloud? What is the significance of the four verses in the Megillah that we read all read aloud? The answer is very simple. We read all the verses that talk about the Jewish people's redemption. Beginning with which is the beginning of the redemption, Mordechai, where we read at the end, and the different places, they're read, they're all talking about redemption. You read it aloud, because loud, aloud means that you're celebrating it. It could be related as well to the fact that the one who reads the Megillah begins to read on a higher note, from where? Because that's the beginning of the miracle. The night that the king had insomnia, which began the story that he called, summoned to be read, the Divrei Hayomim, the stories that happened, the story of Mordechai, and so on. So we see a louder reading, and here in this case, a loud that everybody reads it, is all focusing on the miracle side of it, not on the, the lower part, but so-called the lower events, which are read in a more beta ter- uh, tone, but read aloud represents a more simchadik, a more enthusiastic type of reading. Next question, Zeresh. <laughs> Zeresh is the wife of Haman. So here's the question. Whatever happened to Zeresh? We don't find the Megillah, the end of her story. Haman is hung. His sons are hung. But what happened to uh, Zeresh? The Megillah says Haman and his ten, sons were, his ten sons were killed. But it was Zeresh's idea to build a gallows in the first place, to hang Mordechai. So where does it say she got what was coming to her? Okay. So there are a few comments on this. People quote, firstly, the Targum Sheni. So Esther, Megillus Esther, of course, has a Targum, a regular Targum translation in Aramaic, but there's a Targum Sheni, which is also like a form of a medrash. It elaborates more details. On Esther 9, chapter 9, verse 14, it says that she fled with 70 of Haman's surviving sons. He clearly had other sons. And they were all reduced to begging. They became beggars. This is cited by the Rekeach. Kayach, the famous Sefer uh, Kayach, Eliezer Gurmaiza, in his Pirush on Esther, Share Bina. He has a commentary on Esther, and he cites this uh, Medrash, this Targum, I should say. Okay. There's also a Piyut from the early centuries, I believe 7th or 7th or 8th century, that she committed suicide. The Ramah, in Mechir Yain, the Ramah, Ramosh Isulish, in his commentary on Megillah called Mechir Yain, 9.13 says that uh, she commi- um, says another reason that she was hung with Haman and he alludes it in one of the verses it's alluded to so that's the story with Zedish next question why did Esther have two parties for Achashverosh and Haman we know first she invited them to one party and then a second one so this is already talked about by many commentaries. And now I'll just give you a few of them. And you can look it up. I'm sure online there's many of them. But a few of the commentaries. The interesting commentary from Yenus and Eipschitz. He has a Sefer on Esther as well called Yeshua Gdela. So on the verse 7, 2, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 2, he says something interesting. That when she first entered Achashverosh's palace, which was full of idols and deities, she sensed that the Shekhinah was, was removed from there. The Gemara says that in Megillah, um, Tezvav Beis, 15b. So she realized this is not a suitable place for a miracle to happen. 
So she had to find a situation where she could find a place where she could invite Achashverosh and Haman that will not have Avedah Zara. The problem is Haman wore Avedah Zara all the time. He wore a deity, as I mentioned earlier. So the only place that could happen would be in her own private apartment. So when Haman arrived, the first party, the first time, he was having a Vedizara, so she couldn't do what she had to do. By the way, the place that says that Haman wore an idol was Estadaba 7.5. The next day, Haman ended up having to lead Mordechai on the horse of the king to celebrate and award him for his heroism, saving the king's life. He didn't want his deity to sense that humiliation of him doing so, so he didn't wear that garment. And that's when Esther saw the opportunity to invite him and made him hurry. It says the king's attendant arrived and made him hurry to Esther's party. Why the hurry? Because she wanted to use that opportunity when Noah Vaidazara to get what she wanted and it did work. Then there are other reasons given that Esther learned from Yaakov. There's one reason that Yaakov prepared himself when he met Esau. He um, prepared prayers, a gift, and battle. So Esther began with prayer. Then she did a feast as a gift to try to warm up and so-called soften up the king. And then the second feast would be the battle that she directly confronted Haman. This is the Mera Yaakov Shemeni and Monis Levi and a few different commentaries. There's another story where she takes the cue from Yeshua as he prepared the war with Amalek. It's also from the same source. They also find that everything was done in stages. And there are other reasons given. Because of time limits, I'm not going to go through all of them. But if you want more answers to this, just email us or email me at simon at meaningfullife.com or just give us your email address in the forum at chsidasupply.com and we'll be happy to send you a whole bunch of lists of reasons given why Esther needed to have more than one banquet. Okay. A few more questions on this. You see Purim. And of course, the lessons are plentiful in all of these situations. You see the Mr. Snefers, the commitment, the absolute sacrifice, and, and the way of preparing to prepare everything possible in making sure that you save the Jewish people. We see this from the entire story and all its details. So here's a little humorous Purim type of question. Did Vashti actually grow a physical tail? Okay. The Megillah in Yud Bey's Bey's 12b, the second reason says yes, it was an actual tail, a zonov. The first reason given is the first opinion there in the Gemara is that she was at Sarah, she had a leprosy. So here's the question the person's asking, is this an actual tale? Or is it a metaphor for something else, perhaps an allusion to something sexual? So there are some that actually say the two reasons are not separate reasons. The leprosy took the form of some extra growth. Because the word zonov doesn't necessarily mean a tale, it could also mean and a appendage, something that's grown, extra piece of skin. The bottom line was to humiliate her, in her own eyes. Said she may have, because she was a prutza, the Gemara says. She was immodest. She may have gone, 
but she recognized, she saw that she's, she's unseemly, that caused her not to go. I haven't seen an explanation why in the form of a zonov, a tail, but according to these commentaries, it could be actual, whether it was a full tail or was just a, some growth, that can be discussed and argued. But ultimately, what are the two reasons? As I said, some say it's one reason, and some say different reasoning, but either one, both come to address the same thing, which is that Vashti gave a good reason this miracle happened in order that she should not appear and therefore led the rest of the events to happen. Spiritually, you can say, what is a tail? A tail, animals have a tail. Not all animals, but many animals have a tail. Human beings do not. A tail is an unnecessary element for a human being. In the contrary, as I said, it's unseemly. But a zonav also is, reminds us of what it says by, uh, by Ma'amolek, the, that verse, that, the verse that also says the word zonav in Nachsholim. What does that mean? It means something that is like toxic. A toxic element. And therefore, when a human being has that, and of course Vashti, we know what she did. She would cause the Jewish women to work on Shabbos. She humiliated them. So she in turn, Midah connected Midah, was humiliated in the same way. Everything is cause and effect in this world. So sometimes, when you add something, it's like decreasing. In this case, oh, you want to be overly beautiful? Here's an extra piece that will make you and humiliate you. Which in our lives as well, when we live healthy lives, there's not, nothing extra and nothing less. But when you start decreasing things, then end up being also sometimes you increase things that are unnecessary and they can actually be unhealthy elements that just impede our growth in life. Okay. So we're going to do one more about Hamantashen. Then we'll do something from the Rebbe on this. What is, uh, what is that question? What are the origins of Hamantashen? In Germany, there was a pastry called Mantaschen, translated as a poppy seed packet. Did someone once make a joke and call Mantaschen Hamantaschen? Adding the H-A. And the joke stuck and became a customary Purim food. I don't know. I didn't see that anywhere. There are different reasons people give. Some say Taschen, yes. The pockets of, uh, that uh, Haman had was filled with bribery, so it's a hint to that. Others say it's the triangular shape. There are many different reasons given. I have to say, I have not found anything in Chassidus, authoritative sources that speak about it, even though we have stories of Rebbe Tzachana actually baking Hamantashen when they were in difficult times with the Rablevik and so on. So the custom is there, and we all do that custom, but I've not found a source that I could just repeat and say, there's different things out there that are in Taimim and Hagim and others for them. If anybody has something they would like to share on this, I'd be happy to hear. I thought it's worthwhile asking the question and bringing it up. Um, okay. Some say the word tash, it means to weaken. So it's, it's hinting to the weakening of Haman and other such reasons. Okay. Let's now bring it forward to our day. So two questions came in about the Rebbe on Purim. One of them was, in regards to Purim, did the Rebbe once say at a Purim Fabrengen that anyone, anyone, everyone who raises their hand will become wealthy? Does that only apply to that for particular Fabrengen, or is this potential bracha for wealth available every day? And the answer is yes, it happened in Purim Tovshin Tezvov. We have the sikhs of it, we have recordings of it, we have the Hanochas that were written up, where the Rebbe said, and we're completely surprised to everyone about people complaining, and Parnosa is difficult, that there's an Esrats and it comes Purim, that the doors are open, 
that anyone who in America, they raise hands, anyone who raises their hand, that will take on the Nisoyen, the test of being wealthy, because it has many of challenges, this is an opportunity. Very few raise their hand. And the Rebbe said, then you complain when there's an, open, when there's an opening, there's a window of opportunity, and nobody, call, calls, nobody comes to take advantage of it. I heard from many different people, people were ashamed to raise their hand, but it, it did happen. And they say those that did raise their hand became wealthy. Whether this is something that carries on, listen, call up Peshit Yad Nesimle, we're told. And put him, anyone who stretches out his hand is given. Put him Tavshir Chavov. 1966, the Rebbe at the end of the Fabrenga said that, and the whole place, a pandemonium broke out. People came running. The Rebbe was pouring Mashke, Lechaim. That went on deep into the night, even when the Rebbe left the Fabrenga outside by the car, back to his house. So the idea of putting where the channels are open, yes, call up Peshit Anyone that asks, you give. That's what Purim is about. And you, of course, you're given in return. That's Purim. So with that said, um, I would say that we have the opportunity. Obviously, it doesn't come to when the Rebbe himself made that offer. Another question. Can you relate the story of when the Rebbe went into the small shul upstairs, asked the Gaboyim to lock the doors and close the windows, and then said a maimer about Purim to a small group of 20 people? I remember it vividly. I wasn't there. It was, I think, more than 20 people, but it was after Minchen Friday, Purim Tafshin Mem Aleph, 1981. I was upstairs in my office actually working on the Fabrengen, so the earlier Fabrengen. And after Minchen, the Rebbe said to close the doors, the windows, and said the Maim. There were no recordings, so there were a few people who wrote down the Maimer, and then we uh, published it. We wrote it up and we published it. Why the Rebbe would do that? We know that in the Rebbe's room, when he said, my mother, he also said to close the door. On a very Balabatish level, was there shouldn't be any disturbances. People shouldn't walk in. On a more spiritual level, you're saying, Divrelekim Chaim, you're there. It's a contained space. It's not like open. Whoever's there is Zeche. And whoever's not there is not Zeche. Maybe there are deeper spiritual things of having an enclosed room and not having in and out and so on. Not just because of distraction. On a more spiritual level. I'm speculating. I never heard a reason given for it. But it's not uncommon where the Rebbe was not, it happened more than once, where the Rebbe, whoever is here, is here, and then they close the door. So that could be some of the reasons. That happened, put him tough in my mouth. Now, still, we're still on the Purim theme. There were a few chassidus questions, which I'll do. And then we will do the essays. I will do the essays. Or maybe if time doesn't allow, maybe I won't do them. We'll see shortly. Three questions that came in about Purim, even though these are all questions, but more Hasid is directly related. Purim and Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippurim. Did the Rebbe once say Yom Kippur means the Day of Atonement is like Purim? Because it says Kippurim, Kemoy Purim, which would seem odd. What is the connection between Yom Kippur and Purim? Through our service on Purim, by eating, drinking, and being joyous, are we able to accomplish some of the same things we accomplish on Yom Kippur? such as atonement from sins by not eating? Thank you for answering my questions. I appreciate it. So number one, we spoke about this in episode 84. I'll just be brief. And of course, how could you even say that the holiest day of the year is only like Purim? So firstly, it's not the Rebbe. It's Tikkun Ezeir, where it says in Befez. The Alta Rebbe cites it in Tehreir, and the Rebbe, of course, explains it as well. The point being is, obviously, Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year, Achaz Bashan. But there's something about Purim that has an even higher dimension than Yom Kippur. What is it? That you can accomplish what you do Yom Kippur by refraining from eating and drinking through a meal. 
So the Yechidosh HaBenefesh, the Achas, the one day, the one singular day of Yom Kippur, Purim is also one day. And that one day, you accomplish it by being Mamshechit into Kalim. Drawing down that Yechidah, that oneness, that singularity, into structure. Now, it's obvious that if there was no Yom Kippur, you wouldn't have a Purim that could talk, talk about. Once you had Yom Kippur, who drew down that type of energy by avoiding anything that's material, now comes Purim, which was what? Purim was Kimu Vakibla Yehudim. It was the conclusion of Matan Teda. Matan Teda is Yem Chasanose Zem Matan Teda. It was a wedding. But it says, So the Jews could complain, could still have a complaint. Why? Because you forced it upon us. You took the Kofalim Harkigigis, you took the Mount, the mountain, Mount Sinai, and you covered, you lifted above the head of the Jews and said, If you don't receive the Torah, I will drop the entire mountain on you. So in a way, we were coerced. They accepted on their own, they weren't forced. So the Gemara Shabbos says this, that means Purim has something that Matan Teda doesn't have. And Matan Teda we know is Yom Kippur, the second Luchas. Matan Teda, the second Luchas, the conclusion of Matan Teda is Yom Kippur. So Purim comes and adds a dimension that now it's being done at our own volition. But only after there was a Matan Teda, so only after Yom Kippur then comes a Purim and says, now we can draw down that same energy, this time with our will, with, through our structure, through our eating and drinking. That's one of the explanations given for this. And yes, we can accomplish what Yom Kippur accomplishes through drawing it into food and drink. As the Rebbe points out in many of his talks that he would give a brach Erev Yom Kippur, that it says, Kola eichel anyone who eats and drinks on Erev Yom Kippur, meaning on the 9th of Tishrei, they're considered as if they fasted on 9th and on the 10th. Here you're eating, here you're fasting. So achila primis, achila chetzenius, because on Yom Kippur there's also an eating, but it's not through food, it's a spiritual, direct spiritual connection, it's a spiritual meal. But on, on ninth of Tishrei is similar to Purim, where you can accomplish it through a meal. Second question, What is the significance of the Pasuk and Megillah saying, So we know at the end of the Megillah, we read about that after the Jews won the victory, it says, That for the Jews, it was bright, and the other three expressions. So the question is on the word Eira. With the Suffolk letter, what does it say, Suffolk letter hey. When grammatically it would make sense to use the word oir for light without the letter hey at the end. Also, is there a connection between the Purim and the Havdalah ceremony? Especially because we say that verse in the Havdalah, during Havdalah. So the answer to both is, the answer is yes, but uh, let's go back to the hey. Purim Tov Shechai, that last sikha, where the Rebbe after was a lot of drinking, explains from Tere'er why it says Eira Loshani Keva. Because there's Eir as a mashpia, that's with the Loshen Zohar, the masculine Eir. Eir is Malchus, Eir Hei, Eir Hashem. Hei is Malchus, it's Eir as an recipient. Think of like the Eir Halavona, the light of the moon. And Purim, as I just mentioned, which comes from the bottom up, it was not through revelation from above. The miracle was concealed in nature. It wasn't like by Sinai, my Matan Teda, or my Lamata. It was coming from below, so it's an Eir that is, on one hand, maybe not as powerful, in quantity, but in quality, it was completely internalized. Which the feminine internalizes the simcha. And then it could be mashpia and draw and transmit a light that's even greater than the erha mashpia. A light that comes from keser and from the etzim and the core itself. That's one of the reasons given in chassidus. As far as havdalah, havdalah is the time when Shabbos ends, separating between light and dark. 
separating between the nations and the and the Jewish people, separating between Friday between the, the six days of the week and Shabbos. So Havdolah needs a particular das to be mavdil between distinct discern. You need to have a deeper knowledge. That knowledge comes from Eira. There's a deeper amount of understanding. And the Eira is one of the reasons why in Havdalah, when we make that separation, it's one thing keeping Shabbos, another thing working in the weekdays. But to be able to bridge the two, and we know the separation is only to be able to integrate them, that requires a particular level of Eira, not just Eir. And when we finish Shabbos, when there's all the challenges going into the world, we learn from Purim that even when it's dark, even when we be going from a transition from a holier place to a darker place, we're reminded, It's one of the explanations given, and there are, of course, many others. And finally, Adelayada. The Rebbe explains in many Purim Amorim about the level of Adelayada, to the point that as beyond Das, as I mentioned, supra-rational, supra-conscious, its advantages and how it is attained on Purim. The Rebbe also mentions that we must bring Adelayada down into our day-to-day lives. What is the definition of Adliyada in this context and how do we apply it? Okay. So we all know that we have many different faculties. On a regular routine level, we're mostly controlled by our conscious faculties. Your cognitive mind, thinking things through, das. your emotional faculties. And you're more action-based faculties. That's a chayd you say. Until we have machshavadi b'ramayis, the thought, speech, and action. These are all conscious faculties that we're aware of, that you can control, that you can guide, you can direct. Then there's superconscious. Superconscious called keiches hamakifim. That in the in the kabbalistic structures keser. In the faculties, it's nefesh roch neshama. Nefesh is nihi. That's a chayd you say. The lower three conscious spheres. Ruach is Chagas, Chesed, Gvurit, Tefer is the emotional faculties. Chabad is Neshama, the cognitive faculties. But then there's two more, Chaya and Yechida. Sometimes referred to Rotson and Tainug, Arich and Atik in Kesa. Where are they? Are we conscious of them? No. They're behind the scenes, so to speak. They hover above. Every day of the year, we daven three times a day, we're reaching the conscious levels. Whatever order it goes. On Shabbos and Yontif, we access Yechaya, the transcendent, the spirit of the transcendent. Musaf, the fourth prayer. Yom Kippur, once a year, we access Yechida, Ne'ila. Yechida liyagdacha, that one day, that oneness. You're completely dissolved, completely absorbed by the essence itself. Yechida liyagdacha. Five. So those are the transcendent faculties. So on Purim, which is Purim is similar to Purim, is Yechida, we're reaching a level of Adelayoda, Geirel, as I mentioned before. It's not a rational structure. This does not negate our conscious faculties. It's like the Koyach of Kabbalah Seil, Mesiris Nefesh, Reusa Deliba in the language of Chesidus. These are your serving, not based on rational reasons. You could contemplate on the existence and come to determination. God is kind to you. God has given you life. That, and therefore, you deserve to serve God. Serve, we deserve to thank God and serve Him. But then there's a level where it's not based on rational; it's based on just a core, intrinsic 
inherent connection that we have to something beyond us. When you stand in awe of something beyond you, that's transcendent. And that is a form of adaliyada. We all in life need to have that second. That's where the magic happens. That's that sense of something beyond us. And then we have to integrate that into our conscious faculties. Naran chai. Chai into naran. Chabad chagas nihi. That's a short application. So in every day of our lives, we need to have that. We need to have the reaching something beyond, the adaliyada, and then bring it into the yada, into the conscious, into discernment and knowledge and information and, and, and internalizing it into our systems. Because of the Purim special, we'll do essays next week and we're going to conclude here and I want to wish everybody a very frelich and Purim of Adela Yoda reaching the highest of high but being able to internalize it. We all need that because sometimes we get so caught up in the routines of the vicissitudes of our patterns, certain monotony, so reaching that spark, being able to ignite that Yechidah Sheba Nefesh, that part of you that touches something beyond, that part of you that you recognize something is completely from another reality, and bringing it into our reality is the essence of what Purim is. May we experience it to the fullest. It should be like Yehuda, Meisah, Erev, Simcha, Vesas, Niyakad, Teva, Nireva, Nigla, in a revealed way, in Bona Chaim, in children, in life, in Parnosa, in livelihood, in life and health, in a revealed way. And mixmach geula legeula, that one geula is close and attached, adjoined to another geula, the geula of Pesach, that we should be ready zeche to the geula amitiz v'ashleim even before the month of Nisan, even before Purim. We have freilich and Purim and a freilich and Tomid. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My life is supplied. So this is episode 299. We're getting close to the episode 300 next week. And as I said last week, we're really launching a campaign and ask you to help contribute in multiples of 300. I'm asking for especially partners and sponsors, maybe $3,600, $1,800, of course, more is welcome, in helping us continue this program, and more than that, developing it into resources that can be used in schools, in homes, and we have very interesting ideas of how we integrate chassidus into our lives using this platform of my life, chassidus applied. And thank you beforehand, kol put him at exact time, we're stretching out our arm, both in helping you and we stretch out an arm that you helping us. May we be, join, forge a partnership where it brings down all the abundant blessings, both materially and spiritually. Everyone have again a freilich and purim, a freilich and shader, and only simchas. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.